LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, can suffering give you pleasure? On the show today, we're going to share a conversation between our curator, Susan Kane and psychologist Paul Bloom about Paul's new book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. But to kick things off, let's bring in our producer, Caleb. Hi, Caleb. Hey, Rufus. So this book really resonated for you, didn't it? It did. It did. So first, let me just say, you know, Paul is this incredibly esteemed psychologist. He's a professor at Yale and at the University of Toronto. He's written a couple of other highly regarded books. And in the sweet spot, he sets out to try to understand why people intentionally do painful things. Like, why do we climb mountains or why do we eat spicy food? And he says it's because sometimes pain can actually enhance pleasure. So, I mean, put it another way, he comes to the same conclusion that John Mellencamp came to back in 1982. And I have to tell you, Rufus, I've actually never liked that song, and I didn't initially like Paul's theory either, because personally... I am just not big on pain. I do not like spicy food. I don't enjoy scary movies. I don't know what BDSM stands for. I think it's like Bachelor of Dental Surgery or something. Is that <laughs> something along those lines? Or, Is that it? <laughs> or, or I, I heard it had something to do with clothing pins. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly either. But, you know, it's funny. So reading the book, there is one kind of hurt-so-good example that Paul gives that I did actually think was pretty intriguing. I gave a talk in Finland a few years ago, and my host took me to a sauna. And it's a classic Finnish sauna, so you're in there, you're broiling, you're just broiling, and it feels awful. But it's built so you just hop right out into a lake, and it is blissful. It is mind-blowingly blissful. And then when you're done, you know, broil lake, broil lake, broil lake, you go, and then you sit here in a bathrobe, and attractive people give you beer and sausages, and it's just bliss. And so some of it is, is you play with pain in order to give you subsequent pleasure. And so, well, you know what? Let me play you something I recorded over the weekend with my almost perfect girlfriend, Kirkley. How would you describe my tolerance for pain? Very low. I would say that the way that you react to a stubbed toe is how I would react to, like, slicing the tip of my finger off while chopping vegetables or something. Yeah, you have a much higher pain threshold than I do. I think part of it, we should say, you're a former collegiate athlete. You ran track in college. I did. You now race triathlon. I do. You get a lot more pleasure out of suffering. Yeah, I, I do find a little joy in the pain cave. You also find a lot of joy in learning about Scandinavia. So like in the wintertime, you're all about huga, which is this Danish art of coziness, lighting candles. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you refer to a coffee break as a fika, which is what they talk about in Sweden. Have you heard of this thing they do in Finland where in the wintertime, they like set up a sauna next to a frozen lake and they go back and forth between the sauna and the lake? 
Oh, yeah, totally. I think they actually do it in the harbor outside Helsinki in the Baltic Sea, which freezes over in the wintertime and sounds so cold. But from what I understand, it's related to this aspect of Finnish culture called sisu, which is sort of this idea of mental toughness and fortitude. But there's also some physiological benefits to this intensely cold swimming. Does that sound fun to you? Totally. Really? I would love to go to Finland and do this. Kirk, will you come here? What are you doing? <laughs> so I got some ice at the grocery store. What? And I filled up our tub with ice. And I thought we could do an ice bath in here and then run into the guest bathroom and take the hottest possible shower and then come back to the ice bath and go back to the guest bathroom. <laughs> uh, Are we gonna get in now? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very cold. Do you want some socks? Socks? I hear that your feet get really cold and so they, sometimes they wear socks when they do ice swimming. <laughs> but no, I'm not wearing socks in the bath. <laughs> I do think that, should we put bathing suits on? Because this is a family podcast. I don't know if we we should be. We can put bathing suits on. Okay. Okay, we're back. We've got our bathing suits on. No socks. Okay, one, two, three. Oh my God. Oh my God. (laughs) That's cold. From your research, how long do we stay? I think we have to stay for at least a minute. Okay. Do you think it's been a minute? No. I wish I had socks on. No, I told you. <laughs> okay, let's go to the other room. Good lord. All right, Paul Bloom says that when you're done with the winter swimming, they bring you a beer. So. Mm. Oh, it tastes so good. (sighs) Delicious. Wow. Intrepid. Now, Caleb, tell me the truth. Were you actually wearing bathing suits? (laughs) No comment. No comment. (laughs) And so tell us, Caleb, are you a convert? Yes, absolutely. I have firsthand experience to validate Paul's claim. He's totally right. I should never have doubted him. He's obviously a a brilliant thinker, and it's a beautiful, brilliant book. And there really is something to be said for the pleasure of suffering, even if it's in your own bathtub. Well, I'll have to give it a try. I've always been in the no pain, no pain camp. (laughs) But Paul makes a very strong argument. Paul's book also won over our curators. They chose it as one of the eight best books of the year. And I'm honored to get to hand over the host chair today to one of those curators, Susan Kane. And the timing couldn't be better because Susan has a book of her own coming out soon. It's called Bittersweet. And it's actually kind of similar to Paul's. It's about how sorrow can help us find meaning. And for me, it was so fascinating to get to hear the two of them compare notes. Susan was the perfect host for this conversation, and it's wonderful to get a little early visibility into Susan's new book, her first since her legendary psalm to introversion, Quiet. You're in for a treat. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, everybody. I am Susan Kane with the Next Big Idea Club, and I'm so excited to be here today with the great Paul Bloom, who is the author of many, many books, including his latest, which is our latest Next Big Idea Club pick, and it is called The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. So welcome, Paul. Hi, Susan. It's just totally wonderful to get to talk with you again. So just for like a little bit of background for our listeners, I have been your huge fan for I don't know how many years. I feel like it's been at least a decade, maybe. But we only recently got a chance to meet. But we have a mutual friend, Annie Murphy-Paul, very dear friend, whose book, by the way, The Extended Mind, is also an NBIC pick. And I remember sitting with Annie at an outdoor cafe a few years ago. I think it was not long before COVID. And I remember her telling me about this book that you were writing. And I was so intrigued by it. And also, just because I had been your fan for so long, I was intrigued that we were thinking about very similar topics, I think from different points of view, but I was just struck by that and excited by that. So it is great to be here with you today. You see, this whole shows that you're a better person than I am, because I had a conversation with the same friend, and she told me, as I was talking, I said, you know, my pal Susan Kane is writing a book very much on the same topic. And I'm like, oh, no, holy cow. Are we going to our books kind of come at the same time and everything? But then we talked and I saw we're approaching from different ways and we're coming at at different times. But I think there's a really nice synergy between your project and mine. And we go to kind of talk about how they connect in different ways. Absolutely. And by the way, I totally had that aspect of the reaction too. So, you know, I think that's just natural writer life. I also wrestled with the title of my book. It was almost bittersweet. But yeah, we're interested in very much the same sort of issues and the same sort of puzzles. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think, well, I don't know. I mean, you tell us. It feels to me reading your book as if you started off wondering about these questions of why we should be drawn to supposedly unpleasant experiences, whether it's horror movies or sad songs or whatever it is. But I feel like your book actually ends up becoming a real instruction guide and meditation on the nature of happiness and meaning. Yeah, I don't know if this happens with you, but the book is somewhat unrecognizable from the proposal. Yeah. The book started off, I was going to call it The Pleasures of Suffering, and it was going to be about why do we willingly do things like spicy foods and hot baths, scary movies, BDSM? And why do we simply take pleasure in suffering? And I was going to explore the psychology of it. But as I began to do that, I became interested in suffering more broadly. And I became interested in human motivation more broadly. And in the end, the book is, it's a lot of things, but it's an argument for, and I didn't expect to get there, but an argument for what I could call motivational pluralism, which is that we don't just want pleasure, we want other things too. We want to be good. We want to have meaningful lives. We want to have purpose. We want to have a range of different experiences. So we want different things, and suffering could be a route to getting many of these things. If you had to encapsulate the book like in one thesis statement, would you say it's about motivational pluralism? Yeah, I guess if it, one thesis statement is the book is about why we choose suffering and how suffering can add to pleasure, but also it's part and parcel of what we value the most. Right. And some of the suffering we choose isn't about pleasure at all. It's about deeper pursuits, deeper things we want. You talk about negative emotions not necessarily being unpleasant. 
which sounds like a paradox because if they're negative, then by definition, they would seem to be unpleasant. So can you tell us more about what you mean? Yeah. So one way to approach the issue is through David Hume and his famous paradox of tragedy, which is, and he says, like, why do we sometimes, and he's interested in like fictional experiences like books or plays, why do we sometimes go through sorrow and terror and anxiety, even though things are inherently unpleasant? And it's an enormous puzzle. And people have wrestled with it since. And one response to this is, these feelings, although typically negative, are not in themselves bad. And sometimes we can take pleasure from them. Sometimes we can get insight from them. Sometimes they are unpleasant, but we could revel in them nonetheless. One way to think about this is fear. So imagine a case where you're really afraid. Like, I don't know, it's the middle of the night and you hear heavy footsteps and people running towards you. It's very scary. That's unpleasant. But what makes it unpleasant? I think what makes it unpleasant is that the situation which is frightening to you is a situation that could involve injury or death or something like that. Imagine you could feel fear in a case where you know there's no real threat to you. You're fantasizing, you're dreaming, you're in a haunted house, you're watching a scary movie. Now it takes on a different texture. You say, I I love being afraid. I want to be afraid. I came here to be afraid. And I think so too with motions like anger, which typically is a response to unfairness and injustice, but you could kind of get a kick out of being angry. And connecting to your own work, issues of sorrow, of some of emotional pain. Does that fit your own perspective on things? I guess yes and no for me. To me, the experience of sorrow and bittersweet and why do we like sad songs and the paradox of tragedy as it's applied to sorrow, to me, that's a very different question from other kinds of negative emotions like fear or anger and so on. Yeah, and I I don't want to derail it and go into like a whole different... Um... We have the hour we can go wherever, <laughs> wherever we want. <laughs> We've already been paid. <laughs> so why do you think sorrow is special? I think sorrow is special because I see sadness as being one of the fundamental pathways that we have to human connection, and that it also has to do with spiritual longing. That's why I see it as something that's different from those other kinds of emotions. So I see sorrow as tapping into almost a kind of evolutionary impulse that we have for the mother to respond or the parent to respond to a crying child, and that that's kind of the roots of our ability to respond to each other in general. And I think that when we hear sad music and when we see something beautiful and have that experience of our eyes welling up with tears at the sight of what we think of as an almost unbearable kind of beauty that the reason that we're crying is because I think it comes out of a sense of spiritual longing for a world that is more perfect, more loving, more beautiful than the one that we live in now. And it's like the gap between the world we long for and the world that we actually have that is triggered by that beauty and it's triggered by sad music. So you would say that unlike emotions like fear and anger, which show up in different forms in other species, the sorrow you're talking about sounds uniquely human. Yeah, or that, I don't know if it's uniquely human or not, actually, because all mammals, I would say, are primed to respond to the cries of their infants and probably their affiliative tendencies, you know, that you see like in elephants who will care for each other and and so on. Mm -hmm. I think that also comes from sorrow. So I don't see, it's not that I see sorrow as uniquely human. I think it's more that I see sorrow as a unique emotion 
as opposed to like all the other negative emotions. That's so interesting. There's a book I'll recommend if you haven't read it already. It's by uh, James Elkins, who's an art critic, called Pictures and Tears. He asked people to send him letters about paintings that made them cry. Some of the feelings is exactly as you describe it. People so moved by the beauty that they just start to weep. Yeah. And you, you know, you wrote about that book in your book. And I thought to myself, how did I not come across this in all my years of research? This book looks so interesting. Sometimes it's kind of a very funny book. It describes a woman going to Florence and going to Sistine Chapel and weeping because it's so disappointing. Oh, she's weeping with disappointment. Too many people and it smells bad. And, you know, the book has its twists. But it's a lovely book on the sort of emotional depths of what's associated with feelings like sorrow. Well, tell us about the contrast theory of happiness that you talk about. Yeah. So sometimes suffering is part of fun. And then you can ask, what do we have? Hot baths and saunas and spicy foods and everything. What's going on about sort of low-level experiences? And I think for each one of them, there's a, a lot to be said. But one thing is simple contrast. So, you know, the brain is a difference engine. Experiences are not typically thought of in terms of absolutes, but they're relative to what we've thought of before, relative to our expectations, and relative to what we're feeling. So going without food for a while makes food taste better. Mm-hmm. Eating spicy food and having your mouth burn sets the stage up for drinking some cool beer and immediately the relief. You're not going to get that kind of relief without the pain to begin with. I gave a talk in Finland a few years ago, and my host took me to a sauna. And your classic Finnish sauna, so you're in there, you're broiling, you're just broiling. And it feels awful, but it's built so you just hop right out into a lake. And it oh, is wow. blissful. It is yeah. mind-blowingly blissful. And then when you're done, you know, broil lake, broil lake, broil lake, you go and then you're sitting here in a bathrobe and attractive people give you beer and sausages. And it's just bliss. And so some of it is, is you play with pain in order to give you subsequent pleasure. I don't know there's a deep evolutionary story here. I don't know there's a deep motive. It's kind of a hack people use. What do you mean a hack? What are we hacking when we do that? I don't think we've evolved to do this. I don't think other creatures impose pain upon themselves to get subsequent pleasure. I don't think there's an adaptive advantage to this. I don't think it, it has any much depth to it. I think it's just people figured out that sometimes you cause yourself pain in the right circumstances, and then when it stops, it feels great. So great that it overwhelms the suffering of the pain in the first place. You know what I thought about when I read this in your book? I sometimes have the most ridiculous reaction to hearing about very excruciating things. Like I'll hear about, let's say, somebody who's been taken hostage, and then they're released from being taken hostage. Yeah, And I experience sometimes a moment of I think it's envy or something like it for the moment of pleasure that I imagine they're experiencing at the time of the release. And I've always thought it's just the craziest reaction. It's not envy exactly. It's like, oh, I would love to be having that sensation of utter bliss they must be having at this moment. You know, and then my rational brain will kick in and say, well, you know, it's obviously not worth all the trauma that came before. And all of that is true. But I'm just saying this is like my first order reaction to hearing about it. Does that make sense to you? If you think about it, the bad is more bad than the good is good in life, potentially at least. So, you know, the sad thing is you think of all the things that could happen to you later on in the day that are positive, and none of them are as positive as the bad things that could happen to you later in the day, which include dying, which is really bad from an evolutionary point of view and from a personal point of view, too. So maybe it follows from this that the release from badness 
you've escaped, you don't have cancer, your child is alive, is so powerful that it's kind of hard to beat with more everyday positive experiences. But that feeling is a perfect example. I'm interested in chosen suffering and when we choose and when we orchestrate things, and you're talking about something different here, but it's a perfect example of the power of contrast and what it could do for us. Yeah, and how it exists on such a spectrum. My son was just talking about this the other day. He's 12 and he came home from soccer practice and he was totally exhausted. And and he lay down on the bed. We were getting ready to watch a TV show. And he's like, oh, this is just the greatest feeling in the world yes. after you've been going flat out. And now I just get to lie still. I think we probably yes. have that experience all the time. And we don't even think to savor it as much as we should. I remember when I was a kid in Montreal, shoveling snow. And I'd be shoveling so for a long time. And then, you know, my mom would make me some like hot cocoa and then I'd have like a bath. And it was just right. oh, so good. And you don't get that thing without the bad things before that. I think often psychologists tend to not treat fiction and fictional pleasures with the sort of respect for the complexity that these things deserve. But nonetheless, there are these big studies that take all of the plots from all the stories, have hundreds of thousands of them, crunch them together into a computer. And what they find is one very dominant thing is things get bad and bad and bad, 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 then they get better at the end. And I think that's sort of the, the two-hour version of what you're talking about, which is, I think they call it man in a hole as one of the basic plots. Man falls in a hole. Oh, he's stuck in a hole, tries to get out, stuck in a, then he gets out. He's like, oh, what a great movie. Right. And, and at first he and, thinks he's going to get yes, out, and then he right, can't, and then he finally right. does. Yeah. You know, they're surmounting of obstacles. And it's interesting that for reasons which are kind of cool, it has to have that sort of a temporal contour. Time has to work that way. And there's work, you know, Danny Kahneman, who's a kind of the guru of positive psychology, Nobel Prize winner and brilliant scholar, points out when we think about experiences, endings matter tremendously. Right. And the endings matter so much more than the beginnings. And it just fits common sense. I wonder if there's a cultural dimension to that, because I feel like what you're describing is the way an American or Hollywood movie narrative would need to go but many European movies would be much more like, well, let's just explore what life really is. Yes. And, and it might not end on the happiest note. It might end on a minor key note. And there's something that we get from that too. I think the way to figure out people's natural preferences isn't to look at fancy movies or art films. It's to look at what do most Europeans watch? What do most Asians watch? Most Africans watch? What do people, how do children's stories work? How do superhero movies work? But once you have a pattern, what happens, the first thing, there's many different things you might want out of a fiction pleasures and all of it. But also, once you have a pattern, people then work to subvert it. So there's some very clever movies that set you up for a happy ending and take it away. And one of the pleasures of that is the pleasure of surprise, of delight. Right, right. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. So how do you account for the fact that 
some people are drawn to different kinds of negative experiences. Like last time we talked, I think we talked about the phenomenon of horror movies. And I told you, like to me, I cannot imagine why anybody watches horror movies. And yet, obviously, millions of people do. And that's why this whole genre exists. And yet, I love sad songs. So like, I love spicy food. So what are the differences? Why do we go in one direction and not another? That's an easy one. Nobody knows. Because there are these lists Paul Rosen, who's studied a lot of this, has these lists of unpleasant activities. You ask people, you know, how, what do you think of horror movies? What do you think of a painful massage? What do you think of spicy foods? The list goes on and on. And everybody has their own poison. Everybody has their sort of suffering that they enjoy and that they don't. And as best I know, there's no personality measure, individual differences measure, no answer to that question yet. Even horror movies, you might think that, oh, there's a sex difference. Men like them more than women. But when the studies have been done, the sex difference is real, but it's really small. A lot of women like to be scared. A lot of men don't. I would think with horror movies, I may have said this last time, I can't remember now. I would have thought there would be some correlation with sensation seekers. Did you see anything like that? Yeah. And just to define it for people, sensation seeking, it's a preference for having extreme forms of experience. Yeah. Sensation seeking is predictive overall of wanting to seek out these painful experiences. But the problem is sensation seeking is typically almost defined in terms of a series of questions that ask you, do you enjoy aversive experiences? So it's a typical psychologist trick of saying, my scale predicts mountain climbing perfectly. And then you look at the scale and the scale includes, do you like to mountain climb? And so sensation is almost asking questions in a different way. But if I do the sort of standard psychological measures, how old are you? What's your gender? Are you conscientious, extroverted, open-minded? What you do long? You don't get much prediction. I've heard the claim made, and actually I'm hoping to investigate this, that in societies where life is harder, a lot more poverty, people are living more day-to-day, a lot more struggle, there may be less seeking out of unpleasant experiences, maybe because people have their fill in everyday life. It might be the hunter-gatherers don't engage in BDSM, for instance. But I just don't know. It's just a hypothesis at this point. That's an interesting idea. You did talk about how in cultures that face more difficulties, there is a greater sense of meaning. Yeah. I mean, this gets us back to pluralism. So if you look at the happiest countries in the world, they're the richest countries in the world. It's a very powerful correlation. There are also countries that have a lot of individual freedom, where people trust each other, where there's a good social safety net. You know, there are Denmark, Finland, Australia, Canada, where I'm now at. The U.S. is pretty good, but less, for different reasons, not as happy as they should be. Basically, prosperity gives you happiness. And just like within a country, richer people are happier for and poorer people, because, you know, money buys all sorts of things that are related to happiness. But then you ask people a different question. And... There must be a dozen surveys constantly asking people how happy they are. But Gallup did something many years ago that they had never done before. They said, how much meaning and purpose does your life have? And Nero is a perfect inversion where it's the poorest countries and the ones that are most dangerous with the least social support and the less freedom and more worries about war and disease and poverty. People claim to have the most meaning in their lives. Scientists have wrestled over why people in such countries are more religious. Maybe that causes it. They tend to have more children. Maybe that's related. But I think one answer, maybe on top of those, is that whatever one says of a day-to-day struggle, 
I prefer prosperity for everybody. But whatever everybody says about day-to-day struggle, you don't feel useless. You feel there's a purpose and meaning. If your work is how your family survives and how your world goes on, it's going to feel meaningful. Well, if you're fairly affluent and you're doing a job that's, I think David Graeber has this term, bullshit jobs, Mm -hmm. where they're jobs which don't add anything to the world. They're just shuffling around papers or doing something dispensable jobs. There's a feeling of ennui and lack of meaning. And I think we get a lot of those in a society like ours. You get the same thing, by the way, for jobs themselves. You ask people, what do you do for a living and how much meaning do you find in it? And the jobs that are on the top aren't necessarily high paying or high status. They're jobs like being a member of the clergy, being in the military, a social worker, a teacher. Jobs that are difficult but make a difference in people's lives are counted as high meaning. Well, I don't, I forget the data, but I don't think hedge fund manager is going to get a very high for meaning. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me because you could say one definition of meaning or maybe the definition of meaning in life is the ability to do something for someone else, to make someone's life better or to take away someone else's pain. So it would make sense that in countries facing more struggles, that's something that you're doing Mm -hmm. all the time. Whereas in a situation of prosperity, you might have to look for situations in which you can do that. It's almost analogous to the way You have to force yourself to go to the gym to exercise instead of exercising, just being part of how you you hunt your food. That's a great analogy. I think right now in a world that we live in, we need to seek it out. I think think there's other ways to seek out meaning, like people climb mountains, for instance, and they do all sorts of things. But yeah, we might be more motivated to do this in unusual ways because we don't get it as just part of life as we normally live it. Okay. Climbing mountains. What do you think that's about? You give the example of climbing Everest as an example of the kind of pain people willingly seek out in ways that might seem mystifying to some people. But tell us your explanation. It's a wonderful example of why I gave up framing the book in terms of pleasure. The economist George Lowenstein has a wonderful paper reviewing why people mountain climb. It's called Because It Is There, and he talks about it. And he makes the point that mountain climbing is miserable. Like endurance, serious mountain climbing, it's miserable. People are continually exhausted. It's difficult to breathe. They have a headache the whole time. Frostbite is a constant risk. It's grueling. It doesn't even look that good from when you're doing it. It could be immensely boring. You'd be stuck in a tent for 24 hours waiting for a, a storm to go by. People get to the top and is it a glorious experience? And I say, I'm going to have time to turn around, go back. And on every account, and you can watch documentaries like Touching the Void or Everest, and you see how miserable people are. And yet they love it. They do it again and again. And so Lowenstein and me go through these different explanations for why people not just choose to suffer. They, they pay an enormous amount of money, take immense risks to suffer to do this. And there's different answers. I think a cynical answer for all of this is signaling. You know, it's impressive. It impresses people. It can impress yourself. But I think the real answer is, for whatever reason, it's seen as a meaningful pursuit. And we like to do meaningful, important things. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of two different aspects of this. So one is the contrast theory of pain that you were talking about before. And you know, maybe there really is something that will make us go through all of that just for the sheer moment of bliss yeah. of reaching the top of the mountain. I also wonder if it's operating at some kind of a symbolic level where, I don't know, one of the... <laughs> things that really happened to me through writing this book is I became much more aware of the spiritual dimensions of why we do everything, whether we're atheists or believers, Mm -hmm. it's kind of irrelevant. So I I do wonder if there's something about, you know, this act of symbolically ascending to the heavens that is tapping into some very 
deep instinct that will make us go through it. You know, it's almost like walking to Canterbury with the stones in your shoes. It's like a kind of pilgrimage and you take on pains along the way as a way of making this pilgrimage to ascend to the place you really want to be. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an open question whether that's true for mountain climbing, but it's certainly true for some things. A lot of the suffering we willingly endure is very much in the context of religion. All the major religions have some sort of suffering just baked in, some sort of deprivation. You know, you got to fast on this day. Yeah. You got to, you know, stand up for a long time that day. And then you get the heavy duty sacrifices and self imposed tribulations that are seen as having a spiritual context. I talk about, I have a chapter on this where I just go over the different motivations. You may be seen as reliving the suffering of Christ, or you may be seen as in some way paying God back for what he's done for you. What's interesting is that religion, more so than anything else I could think of, provides a rationale for unchosen suffering. So my book is very much why we choose to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I actually think we could talk about unchosen suffering. Probably it does not have the benefits many people say it does. It's often just terrible. But we're very good storytellers. And when bad things happen to us, we're quite good at telling a story why. And often the story involves religion, a religious context. There's a wonderful passage from a pope who's, I forget which pope it was, but he goes on to say, a good father disciplines his children. And makes his children suffer so that they learn. Well, that's what happens when we suffer. And C.S. Lewis has this wonderful, I love C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Me Lewis. too. Oh, he's the best. And he has this wonderful line saying, that when things are going well, nobody looks towards God. You say, this is great. But when we're in pain, when we're suffering, all of a sudden God's voice, which was once a whisper, becomes a bellow. I have to say there's a lovely part. When I talk about the difference between chosen suffering and unchosen suffering, I give an example of fasting, where sometimes people choose to fast. And there could be a real sense of mastery in not eating for a period. You know, look at me. But an unchosen suffering is you ran out of food or someone's locked you in a cage. You, you know, even that's terrible. But C.S. Lewis nicely inverts it, where he's very kind of angry at the fasters. Because when you fast, too many people get caught up in their own pride. They don't look towards God. They say, look what a special person I am. Look at my powers. And what somebody like me sees as a positive thing, he sees as a negative thing. Because he's seeing it as a kind of like grand virtue signaling or something. (laughs) Yes, yes. You know, there's a reason why the seven deadly sins, pride's supposed to be the worst one. Right, 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 right. I think it's because you say, look at me and not look at God. You know, the thing you just said about the stories that we construct to explain our situations, I'm curious to ask you what you think about this. In my book, I spend a lot of time talking to people who are really involved with a quest to extend human lifespan, possibly forever. And I interviewed one of those scientists. He said something like, because we for so long have believed that it is absolutely impossible to defy death, according to him, we tell ourselves these stories about how death gives meaning to life and so on. But that's only a story that we've told ourselves out of necessity. And if we didn't have that necessity, the story would go away. I'm not sure I agree with that. Like, I have all kinds of thoughts about that. But I'm curious how you see that in the context of everything you've been looking at in this book. Oh, so I never thought of that. I think he's right and he's wrong. I think he's right in that people do when faced with the fact that we have, you know, roughly 70, 80, 90 years of things go well. We often tell stories that that's just right. You know, oh, to live longer would be horrible. Something would go wrong. There's sort of a fundamental conservatism in our thinking there, which is to take this terrible inevitability and tell a nice story about it, that it's just as planned 
And I think that's foolish. I think if somebody offered me a pill that would give me another 50 years of happy life, of course I would take it. And then I'll make a story for why, you know, 120 years is the best number of years. That's what I was going to say. Okay, 50. So what about 100? What about 300? So here's where I disagree with him, which is a long life is a great life. Maybe the longer, the better. But I think, and this is me parroting back arguments by philosophers, but I think they're, they're right, is that I think a sense of some degree of finitude, some degree of that it doesn't go on forever, is necessary for life's projects. Without it, there would be not even a sort of tinge of any urgency. You could put off anything indefinitely. And I think a life needs to have an ending in order for, as you're participating in it, for you to go forward with it. That's funny that you cite the philosophers in that point of view, because when I was at this conference interviewing this scientist, I texted a friend of mine, Rafaela de Rosa. She's a philosophy professor. And I was telling her about these ideas and she was texting me back and saying, that's crazy. What about Heidegger? You won't want to get anything done without that kind of urgency. There's a wonderful song. I forget. This is better than any philosophy. A wonderful song. Something like, while we were vampires. If we were vampires and death was a joke. And it's about vampires talking about eternal life. And the claim is that love, real love, requires some degree of aging, requires some idea that there could be an ending. What do you think? Do you side it to philosophers here? I don't know. I mean, I'm really torn with this particular one. I do think that the people who make this kind of argument in favor of living forever, I've also heard them say things like, if we can solve this problem of mortality, then we can solve any problem, including the problem of scarcity and conflict and everything. And I really don't see it that way at all. And I think that the fact of our shared mortality is actually one of the greatest hopes that we have for being able to truly love and understand each other. Because it's like a kind of fundamental deep knowledge of we're in this together, you know, this crazy mystery of life and death. And then on the other hand, there was another one of these guys who I talked to, and he did this thought experiment with me where he said, okay, imagine that you had the ability to press the button to say when you're going to go, would you press it for tomorrow? And, you know, of course the answer is no. Well, would you press it for the next day? No. Would you press it for next year? No. And, and you know, it becomes impossible to figure out when is the day that you would actually press that button. I guess you could say what's wrong with that thought experiment is that it's a case where you have the agency, whereas so much of the mystery of death, I think, has to do with the fact that we have no control over it, no knowledge, no ability to predict it. I also wonder whether if you had the button in front of you and even assume that you live forever or you live indefinitely and assume that your body stays the same, everything just works fine and everything, and there's no disease and everything. I wonder if people eventually would hit the button, would say enough is enough. I'm just too bored or I'm too, like, I mean, you talk in your book about how boredom is the one negative thing that we just cannot tolerate. That's right. There's all sorts of things we willingly experience for suffering physical deprivation, emotional pain, the list goes on and on. There are some exceptions to this, but for the most part, people don't say, you know, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go sit in a room and do nothing for a few hours just to suffer boredom. It's funny, there's two things that we don't seem to want. One is boredom, the other one is nausea. I mean, certainly there's a lot of people in the world, millions and millions, who would choose to die if they can, and many do as they get older. But that's confounded with all sorts of physical ailments and problems. 
Oh, yeah. And all these people who would advocate for living forever for a radically longer time, it's always supposing that you have health and, and you're not yes, decrepit. That's right. There was a discussion I, I heard once. Do you think there are some things you would never, ever get bored of? I heard people discuss, I think Tyler Cowen on a podcast, and he said one of the things is like food, because you've evolved to eat. You'll never say, I'm bored of eating. So boring. That's true. And I'll give you another one. I think music. I mean, and you can obviously get bored of listening to the same song too many times. Yes. But the experience of hearing something that you love that's yeah. fresh enough, I don't know. I don't think that would ever go away because I yeah. think that's the ultimate transcendent experience. Oh, that's interesting. I really do. I think music above everything else. For me, uh, Wordle. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but but it's clever for those who don't know. It's this word game that comes out every day, but it only comes out once a day. And so the trick to not being bored is to space out your pleasures. <laughs> Would you like to be the most interesting person at your next cocktail party? Want to be the person who always has a great answer to the question, read any good books lately? Want to get smarter without cutting into your precious Netflix binge time? Well, allow me to introduce you to the Next Big Idea app. Our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink, have handpicked hundreds of the best new books, and we've worked directly with the authors of those books to create 12-minute audio summaries. Unlike other book summary apps, these aren't written by side-hustling college students. They're written and read by the authors themselves. And that's not all you'll find once you download the app. We also have masterclasses from authors like Shankar Vedantam and Lisa Feldman Barrett, ad-free versions of this podcast, and exclusive author interviews you can't find anywhere else. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app today by going to your app store and searching for Next Big Idea. We don't have so much more time, so I want to just ask you a few more things about your book. Let's talk about Nozick's experience machine. Yeah. Also a thought experiment. It's a great thought experiment. It's part of an argument against hedonism. So Robert Nozick, a brilliant libertarian philosopher, says this. Imagine there's a machine. You plug yourself into it, and you lie on a bed, and then it will be as if to you, you were living the best life possible. You were living a life of sex and romance and love and adventure and success and so on. If you think the best life possible involves some difficulty, you'll have difficulty. You'll have risk. You'll have everything. But the very best life, you would live it when I plug you into the machine. But of course, you're not doing anything. You've just been the rest of your life as sort of a vegetable. You're just lying there until your natural death. And Nozick says nobody would want to put himself into that machine because, you know, people want to live a life. They don't want to just imagine a good life. And I think this is terribly overstated because certainly if I was in a prison or if I had a terrible chronic pain, I can imagine all sorts of situations where I'd say, plug me in, man. But I think he's actually right. I've raised children. I think that's valuable. That's important. I don't want to think I raised children. I don't want the experiences of raising children. I want to actually raise children. I want to fall in love. I want to write books. I want to do projects. Even want to fail. 
and I want to really do it, not just think I did it. So Nozick's conclusion here is to say, we don't want the experiences in and of themselves. What we want is we want to actually do these things. The experiences are valuable only insofar as they reflect actual things. And that's an argument against hedonism. I've raised this in different classes, and you get different responses. Some people say, no, I'd be plugged in. And I don't know what to make of such people, but there are such people who say it. What about you? You wouldn't want to be plugged in. Well, I think some of this may have to do with our quest for wanting truth, like wanting things to be true. I think we can't stand the fact of, no matter how much we're enjoying the experience, being told it's not real, it's not true. That's right. I actually wonder if there's like any correlation between people who tend to say, yeah, you know, sign me up for the machine and their tendency to seek truth. I don't know. But I will say, having said that, which makes me sound like, oh yeah, I probably would not want to sign up for the machine. But you flipped it around in the book and you said, okay, now imagine the scenario where you were in the machine to begin with. That's all you ever knew. And then somebody comes to you and says, that was all a machine. Now do you want the truth? And I have to tell you, I keep asking myself that question ever since I read it. I've not been able to stop thinking about it. And I think, well, what if my kids were part of the machine? What if my husband were part of the machine my whole life? Would I really give all that away? And what if they told you, you know, the reality that you're going to go to is considerably less pleasant? Yeah. What would you do for real? No, I know that. I think it's Philippe de Brigard, who's a philosopher who does experiments, gave that scenario. And you could just imagine it. You're talking to me, and all of a sudden you blip out, and you're in a room. And some technicians are there and saying, well, you've been in the machine. Of course, when you're in the machine, you don't know you're in a machine. That's the trick. Every five years, we check on you and everything. Do you want to go back? And then you say, well, I want to go back to be with my kids and my family. Those don't exist. There's no such thing. They're just a dream. But of course, if you go back, you'll be with them again in your dream. And I hear that and I think, send me back. So his claim is that we do the experiment the wrong way. We suffer from a status quo bias. And if we're in the machine, we want to stay in there. Maybe, I don't know, just listening to you, I'm thinking maybe it's not only that and a status quo bias. Maybe it's also part of our instinct to believe that fiction can be just as deep a truth as reality. Why do we read novels? It's not really because we want to be told a tall tale. That's not the only pleasure of it. It's because we feel like there's a deeper truth in there. You know, so if someone said your kids, your books, your writing, like all the things you love the most they were a fiction, there could still be truth in that fiction. I think so. And this is an answer David Chalmers would give. And he argues that if a virtual reality becomes in some way sufficiently detailed and is indistinguishable from real world, it is real. There's a sense in which it is real and should be cherished as such. There's all these real world cases that are sort of like Nozick's case. I can't imagine, suppose you convince me that heroin will give me tremendous bliss. And I'm told it has quite those powers. And suppose you told me more implausibly that you could hook me up to a heroin grip for the next, you know, suppose I have to live another 30 years. So you've been 30 years just in bliss. There's no way I would take that because there are people around and people depend on me. And that's what I often, people who say, oh, plug me in, man. I point out, don't you have people you love? Well, you'd be separated from them. And the thing is, you won't know you'll be separated from them. When you're in the machine, you won't feel bad at all, because there they are. But of course, you will be separated from them, and you will cause them pain. My son went through a phase where he was reading those Ready Player One books, you know, which are all about oh, yes. virtual reality. Oh, yes. And so he asked me, you know, if I could live in that Ready Player One existence, what would I want it to look like? 
And I said, I want it to look like just a great cafe, <laughs> you know, like my perfect cafe. He's like, really? That's what you would choose? <laughs> you, you'd have a whole virtual reality thing. And then just kind of nice cafe, drinking coffee and just watching the world go by. It's the highest pleasure. <laughs> okay. In what ways, if any, did your intuitions and conclusions change as you were researching and writing this book? I think in some way with certain personal decisions, it's made me a bit braver. Made you braver? I wrote the book during a sort of topsy-turvy point in my life. And at times I was confronted with decisions over whether to keep life sort of as it is and good or to take steps that will make things harder, but in some sense better. Mm. You know, and you think of all sorts of extravagant cases like that, but even, right. even simple cases like, I don't know, somebody decided whether to get a pet. I don't know whether to go on a trip, whether to say yes to something complicated. I think in those cases, sometimes thinking about it, the idea of motivational pluralism, I mean, there's other things besides being happy. It pushed me in different directions. And that makes me think of all the research that you have in the book about children and, you know, the decision to have children and all the research that's been found yeah. about how people who have children, they will say they have great meaning, but they're not necessarily happy in each given moment while they're like wiping up the floor of smashed Cheerios and all yes. those different things. Yes, children are a wonderful case of the conflict between different values we have, and also a great case of chosen suffering. I mean, nobody who has a kid expects it to be this easy ride. They know it's going to have all these challenges and difficulties. There's a lot of psychological work. I mentioned Danny Kahneman before, and he was involved in original work. Find that kids just make you less happy day to day. You know, you have a study where you get people to have an iPhone and it goes off random times, they say how happy you are. And it turns out when people are with their young kids, they're not happy. They're not enjoying it for the most part. There are a lot of literature showing up that non-parents are happier than parents. And then, as often happens, psychology, things got more complicated. So it turns out that this is particularly true for Americans, but not people in other countries, maybe having to do with childcare situations. It's having a kid is worse for women than for men. It's worse for young people and for older people. It's particularly worse for single parents. But still, hedonically, if you said, all I want is to be happy, I would not know sure I'd advise anybody to have a kid. But of course, when people say having a kid was the greatest thing of my life, they're not saying I got many more hedons from it. And they're saying, well, it's meaning. It's a new relationship. It's somebody I love is in the world now and it's connection. And I feel important. I feel needed. It's stuff like that. And so many psychologists miss those other aspects of a good life. One way to put it is, I think when people have kids and think back on having kids and value it, they're not thinking in terms of pleasure in any simple sense. It's a lot of other things that are, I think, just really important. There's this ritual that I wrote about in my book, and I could never figure out where it came from. I just know I read about it somewhere. And I read about it long before I had children, but it really stuck with me. It's a ritual. It's performed by a tribe somewhere in this world. And this ritual is designed to prepare women for the loss of their young men at puberty. And what the woman has to do every year from the time her son is born in this tribe, this is only about sons. We would think of it for daughters too. But anyway, from the time that her son is born, she has to give up something precious to her. So whether it's a bracelet or a kind of food that she loves to eat or whatever it is. And the idea is that it's supposed to prepare her for that moment of the profound empty nest of her son turning into a man. God. Wow. I know. It's smart. I mean, in our culture, people don't leave the house typically at puberty. 
my own experience is slightly different. I was very sad when my sons left the house. I really missed them both. But I know a lot of people who desperately loved their kids. But when it was time for them to leave, they were ready to get them out. And the teenage years were stressful enough that it made the departure easier. I'm not trying to put a curse on you. For- no, not at all. We're still in the sweet spot years, so we'll see. Yes. I don't know. My kids are 12 and 14, like so far so good. Honestly, the sweet spot years could last forever. The ugly teenage stereotypes of all sorts of trouble are by no means inevitable. Yes, that's what I hear. So I have my fingers yeah. crossed. But I have not been doing the giving up of my iPhone or whatever I would give up <laughs> if I were performing this. <laughs> Shutting down your Netflix account. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I think we're going to be out of time in a minute. So is there anything that we should have covered or a point from the book that you really would have wanted to convey that we haven't talked about? We've been talking around your book, but I'll ask you the question you asked me then. How's writing your book changed you? Oh, gosh. I guess it changed me in a way that I alluded to during our conversation, which is that all my life I've been a pretty deep agnostic, and I still am. I started out the book trying to answer what I thought was a kind of narrow question, yet one that possessed me and I could not let go. And it was the question of why listening to sad or minor key music feels not just pleasurable, but incredibly elevating, as close to transcendence as it gets. And I couldn't understand why that should be. Like I would feel this great sense of love with anybody else who had felt the sorrow that the music was trying to convey. And what was that? And in trying to answer this question, it actually really led me down a spiritual path that I hadn't really understood was embedded in the music all along. And I'm still just as much of an agnostic as I ever was, but I really have come to believe that the essence of being human is to long for what I call the perfect and beautiful world. And that we express that religiously, you know, there's like the longing for Mecca, the longing for Zion, the longing for the beloved of the soul. We express that religiously, but we also express it in books and in music and in love, and that that's kind of the heart of everything. Wow. And applying that to your field of psychology, if I were a psychology researcher, I've started to think that because most psychology researchers tend to be atheist or agnostic, I don't think that we've been thinking about spirituality in the right way. The way I've seen it discussed, it's like, here's positive psychology. Here's a list of, you know, 24 great character traits you might have. One of those is spirituality. And that makes it sound as if, you know, there's like a few people or some people for whom spirituality is this thing that they do. And that's great. And there's all this research showing that it makes them happy and loving and all these things. But it's just like a personality trait or something like that. Instead of looking at it as the true essence of who we are and studying it from that point of view. So that was a huge radical change for me because I did not expect it. I wasn't looking for it, but that's where I went. That sounds extraordinary. I'm very curious whether the book will evoke a similar response in your your readers, including me. Yeah. (laughs) It'll be interesting to see. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much for this amazing conversation. I know we said this last time, but I really hope we get to do it in person before long. Yes, same. It's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And thank you so much for sharing this book with us and... I know I said I had asked the last question, but I just want to ask you one more, which is what's your next book, if you're ready to say? (laughs) I'm not far from being finished a draft of, it's a very different kind of book. It's a book just talks all about psychology. It's not a textbook, but it's an accessible introduction to the field of psychology. If somebody wants to know the science of psychology, everything from the brain to positive psychology to neuroses to everything, this is what the book is for. 
oh my gosh, that's like a history of everything kind of book. And man, it was much harder right than I thought it would be. I can imagine. That sounds incredibly daunting, and I can't wait to read it. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Paul, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, Susan and Paul. If you enjoyed this conversation, then I highly recommend Paul's wonderful book, The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. You may also enjoy the e-course he created for the Next Big Idea Club, as well as his book bite, in which he distills the sweet spot down to five key insights in 12 minutes. You can find them both in the Next Big Idea app. Download it now. The brief displeasure of the download process is guaranteed to be followed by delight. And good news for you Susan Cain fans out there. Her new book, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, is due out April 5th. You can pre-order it now. And I'm excited to announce that Susan will be back on the show to talk about it with me on April 7th. If you are enjoying this show, we would love to hear from you. Please leave us a five-star rating, if you think we've earned it, and a review. That will not only put a bounce in our step and help other people find the show, it will also help us bury the negative reviews. Yes, there are negative reviews, like this one from Leo's Papa 21. Anti-capitalist propaganda. This is for hypocrites who hate free enterprise, but still buy and sell every day. Anti-capitalist, that's a new one. To shake that off, I'm gonna to have to read you a more representative review. Here's Aquatonic. Great listen, love most of the episodes. I have a few faves I've listened to multiple times because I find the concepts helpful and wanna keep them fresh in my mind. Thank you, Equitonic, and thank you all in advance for leaving us a review. We might just read it on air. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger, who is currently floating in an icy bath. Caleb, who else should we thank? Our mountain climbing executive producer is Michael Kovnat, sound designed by Chris Sharp. Working with the team at LinkedIn gives us nothing but pleasure. I'm Rufus Griscom. No, you're not. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>